Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Previously on Acts 23. If you recall, last week we ended the uh, service with to be continued. In last week's episode of Acts 23, Paul has seemingly lost a life and death match of paper, rock, and scissors. A mob is calling for his head. A high-profile court case has erupted into violence and chaos, causing the chief captain to call for a recess in the proceedings, says, let's let the tempers cool, we'll come back together another time. Paul has two different countries' power players that want him dead, that are at his throat. He's got the Romans imprisoning him, and we're about to scourge him, to beat him in interrogation. The Jews are trying to kill him. He's all alone in chains in this incendiary situation. Things are not looking good for our friend Paul in Acts 23, especially the first 10 verses. They weren't looking good until, that is, the verse that was our text verse last Sunday, if you were here, Acts 23.11. Would you read Acts 23.11 with me aloud? And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. As I almost always do, I encourage you to follow along with Scripture. See it for yourself. Uh, we want our church and, and the preaching of our church to always be based uh, supremely and solely upon the truths of Scripture, not the opinions or thoughts of man. Acts 23, verse number 11. Would you read it aloud with me? Ready? Begin, and the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Things are not looking good for Paul. And in the middle of the night, maybe tears, maybe probably still some bruises and, 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 and scabs and, and maybe some wounds that are still healing and some pain, and, and he's in chains, and, and maybe despair. I have to believe despair because of the fact that Christ himself came to visit Paul in the night. Maybe alone—not maybe, alone, friendless at this point, no communication with anybody that's on his side. And Christ comes to him in that night and says— be of good cheer, Paul. I preached that entire message last week on cheer up. And that sounds like a pretty shallow platitude, but really we dug into why Paul could be of good courage when everything in his life was saying not to be. If you weren't here last Sunday, I'd encourage you to go back and listen on our website or our podcast, our Facebook page archive there. Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. What is communicated in that verse is, Paul, you're, it's not, it's not going to go as bad as you think here. I still have a plan. I still have power. I, I, you have my presence. I have a future for you. And that's a really exciting verse. And so we think, okay, it's all going to go good. And this morning, I want us to see the exciting conclusion of our story here in Acts 23. Uh, our title this morning is a little bit of a play on words. We are going to see the conclusion or the finish of this story in Acts 23, but we're also, we're also going to uh, come to four conclusions or ideas from this story that I believe can be truly exciting in our lives if we'll grasp them. 
We're going to see the final episode, the, the conclusion of this episode of Paul's stay in Jerusalem, the exciting conclusion to the story, but then we're going to pull out four conclusions or ideas or deductions from this that we can apply to our lives. Today in this exciting conclusion, we're going to see a murder plot. We're going to see a hunger strike. We're going to see an unlikely, an unlikely informant and snitch and an exciting middle-of-the-night escape. It's, it's an awesome story. And I'm going to encourage you this morning as we read through the story and then pull out those four conclusions, I'm going to ask you as we start right now for you to ask God, which one of these conclusions is for me today? Which one of these truths from Paul's story do I need to carry with me this week? I want you to look at the exciting conclusion. Let's jump into the story. Verse number 12, follow along. We're going to read to the end of the chapter, see the end of the story, and then pull out those thoughts. Acts chapter number 23, verse number 12. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would eat, neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. So we have 40 zealots, 40 armed assassins, and they make a pact together, and they come and they say, all right, guys, we're not going to eat till Paul's dead. Basically, what they're saying is, this is, it's, it's go time. It's now or never. We're going to do this because they're not going to kill themselves. So we are making a pact that he's going to be dead somewhere in the next three days, whatever we have to do. That's what we're reading here. Verse number 13, and they were more than 40, which made, had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders, remember Paul before the Sanhedrin last week, and said, we have bound ourselves under a great curse that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now, therefore, because of our decision, you with the council— Signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though ye would inquire something more perfectly concerning him, and we or ever he come near are ready to kill him. So get the story. These guys decide enough's enough. Paul is like the, he's the slipperiest guy out there. Nothing ever sticks to him. We can't ever, we can't ever get this done. Much like Christ, no, nothing we say and accuse him of he ever gets convicted of. And they say, this is it. We're going to do it. So the, the Romans had brought them to the Jews, the Sanhedrin last week. And they come back to them, these 40, and they say, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to fix your problem. You don't have to worry about getting good evidence. You don't have to worry about getting a good informant. You don't have to worry about good witnesses. Here's what we're going to do. You go, you guys, you're, you've got power. You go and tell the chief captain, the soldier, the Roman centurion, the, the one over the centurions. You go tell him, hey, we need to bring Paul back into court. We gotta, we've got we've to get some more uh, evidence, some more testimony. We need Paul to come back in. And you go tell him to, do, tell him to bring him. And when that caravan's coming into court, we're going to be ready. He's never going to make it to court. It's over. We're going to kill Paul. So this is the plan. We've got these armed assassins. We've got these powerful religious and political leaders. Look at verse number, uh, verse number uh, 16. And when Paul's sister's son, this is interesting because it's the only place we hear of any interaction with Paul and his family after salvation. In fact, what we see in another place is basically he had lost his relationship with all of his family. When Paul's sister's son, his nephew, heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So we've got a young nephew. We don't know the age. Maybe a teenager. Maybe younger than that. The fact that they let him come into the castle where Paul was staying shows nobody viewed him as a threat. 
In a minute, we're going to see that the captain's going to take him by the hand. Gives the idea probably a little boy. This boy hears, they're going to kill my uncle. He's got the plot. He comes in and he says, hey, Uncle Paul, I just want you to know you're not going to make it to court tomorrow. The plan is for they're going to bring you to court, but they have, no, they have no intention of you making it to court. They're going to kill you. Paul says, oh man, somebody needs to find this out. Hey, he calls the guy over. He says, he calls the soldier over, says, will you take him to your boss? And hey, nephew, go tell that story to the boss. Verse number 17, then Paul called one of the centurions, said, bring this young man. Verse 18, so he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who hath something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, what is it? What, what is it, son? What do you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldst bring down Paul tomorrow into the council as though they would inquire somewhat of him more perfectly. They're going to tell you to bring Paul because they have some questions. They've, they've got to get clarified. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than 40 men, which have bound themselves with an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. So the chief captain then let the young man depart and charged him, see thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. We read these as words on a page. These are real life stories. If we could see this on screen, maybe it might but put yourself into the story. So there is a well thought out plan that is in, in the works and Paul is going to be dead within a day. And a little boy, I think a little boy, somewhere a young man, he comes and tells his uncle, I heard about this. His uncle says, go tell him. He calls him aside. The chief captain says, all right, thanks for telling me. Don't tell anybody else. You could mess this whole thing up. The drama, the suspense, what's going to happen? Is Paul going to make it? Is this boy going to go blab somewhere? Is the chief captain, he's not a believer. He's not a Christian. Is, the, is this Roman military leader, is he going to care? Why do I care? It's one less thing on my plate. Let's see what happens. Verse 23. And he called unto him two centurions. Centurions are soldiers that each would lead 100 soldiers. So two men that, that were oversaw 200 soldiers saying, make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea. And horsemen, three score and 10, 70 uh, horsemen and spearmen, 200 at the third hour of the night, nine o'clock p.m. And provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter after this manner. So he says, all right, here's the plan. Centurions, hey, get your crew. I need your 200 soldiers. Get them armored up. Get, get the weapons. Go get me 70 horsemen. I need 70 guys on horses, all in the full armor. And then get me 200 spearmen. So we're going to have 400 soldiers, 70 on horse, 470, 70 on horse, and then bring a couple extra horses. Paul needs his own, and we're going to send him with a couple guys, and we're going to move him out, and we're going to send him over to Caesarea, this port city, this seaside town on the, on the Mediterranean Sea, beautiful area if you've ever been there, and uh, shameless plug. We're supposed to be taking a trip to Israel next September. If you'd like to go, um, we're going to be doing an interest meeting, informational meeting soon, and Lord willing, with travel, we'll see how that goes. We're planning next September to take a trip over there. We'll stop right here in Caesarea, this, this Mediterranean Sea coastal town. And when you transfer a prisoner from one place to another, the Romans, they had to send a letter to explain what was going on. So he wrote a letter. I want you to see this. There's humor in the Bible if you, if you look at it and find it. He says, he says, Claudius Lysias, unto the most excellent governor Felix, sendeth greeting. 
This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. He's, he's, he, he's, he comes in and says, I want you to know I'm doing a great job over here in Jerusalem. Here's the reality. He almost killed Paul. He thought Paul was some Egyptian revolutionary. He didn't know he was a Roman. He was about to beat him, scourge him. And then his, one of his, his underlings came and said, did you know this guy's a Roman citizen? And he said, whoa, 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 stop. Now when he sends the letter, he conveniently leaves all of that out of the letter, doesn't he? I want you to know, this guy almost died, but because of my, my amazing management skills, we have, we have saved him, my leadership. And when I, when I would, verse 28, when I would have known the cause wherefore they accused him of, I brought him forth unto their counsel whom I perceive to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. They've not really come up with any good reason why he should be put to death. And when it was told me how that the Jews laid wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and also to say before thee what they had against him. Farewell. So he writes the letter, leaves out all the things that makes him look bad, puts in all the things that makes him look good. Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. On the morrow, that's about 37 miles, by the way, a major march through the night, 37 miles, forced march there. On the morrow, they left the horsemen to go with him and returned to the castle, who when they came to Caesarea, another 27 miles, and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was. And when he understood that he was of Cilicia, uh, he, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers are also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. So Paul has made the great escape. God has done the unthinkable, what seemed to be impossible. Paul was, was, was hours away from death. And God did this amazing, got him out. They went about 37 miles. At that point, they were under not a big threat anymore of, of Jews attacking their caravan. And now he leaves and he goes back. The, the soldiers go back. The 70 horsemen continue on with Paul. And he ends up in Caesarea. And we see, and we're going to see next week, um, his problems are not over, by the way. God's promises are still true. But his problems are not over. We're going to see how he ends up getting to Rome, but he's going to address um, before Felix and then King Agrippa and some others. But we see the end of his episode in Jerusalem. And I want to give us that exciting conclusion. We see the end of that story. I want to give us four to me what I believe are, they may not sound like it at first, but exciting conclusions from this story. The first truth I want to pull out here this morning, number one, conclusion number one is this, God's presence and his promises don't eliminate our problems or pain. See, a message like last week, I believe it was scriptural and I believe it's needed. But I think it can also give us the wrong idea if we're not careful, if we don't understand the totality. God's with me, so my life will be easy. God's powerful, so I'll never have a defeat. God is strong. We, we get visited by Christ in the night and we're so excited. Okay, everything's going to be good. I want you to flip back over the first five words of, of verse number 12, our first verse that we started with tonight. So in verse 11, it says, the night following the Lord stood by him. That's really exciting. Uh, that, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. God is here. He's with me in my darkest night. The night following the Lord stood by him. But would you look at the first five words of verse number 12. Would you read them aloud with me? Acts 23, verse 12, the first five words. Ready? Begin. 
And when it was day, guess what Paul woke up to? New problems. God, you gave me your, your promise of your, your, you showed me your presence. You gave me your promise of your power and your plan. And guess what he woke up to? And when it was day, you know what he woke up to? All right. The, 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 uh, sometimes this happens, but this didn't happen this time. The jailer walked in, all right, take off your chains. You're free to go. You're good to leave. That's not what happened. Sometimes God delivers that way. Sometimes he comes through and, and, and we're on the mountaintop. Paul, at one of his lowest moments, in my opinion, one of his darkest nights, God says, I'm right here with you. Paul wakes up the next morning. I have to imagine he woke up think, maybe whistling a tune. And God is so good. God, and he's, he's singing, man, this is, a, this was, that was the best night of my life. God told me, Jesus came, he talked to me, he ministered to me. And you know what? He's whistling and next thing he knows, his nephew, oh, hey, I haven't seen you for a while. Are you coming to tell me I'm getting out? No, I'm coming to tell you you're about to die. But what, what about verse 11? I don't know what's about verse 11. I just know that I heard 40 guys that are trained killers that are ready to kill you. What? No, 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 no. No, like last night, I, I, I got strength. I got encouragement. I, I, God, God ministered to me in my darkest moment, and, and, he, and he told me, I, I see your work. I know what you've done. I, I see your faithfulness, and I've got a plan for you. I'm not done with you. This can't be right. And this doesn't sound like an exciting conclusion, but I think it's a good reminder for us. It, it helps us to be able to walk through the trials of life when we understand the reality, the conclusion that God's presence is there and His promises are true, but that doesn't always mean that all pain and problems get eliminated. But Pastor Ryan, I got victory over that struggle, and I went to church and got strength, and I spent time in prayer, and my faith was increased, and I came last week, and, 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 and you, really, you really gave me a shot in the arm, and I hope it was God's Spirit and His Word that did that. But man, your teaching really helped me, Pastor Ryan, but then I woke up and Monday came. And then I got that email from my boss on Tuesday, and, and then that loved one hurt me on Wednesday, and, and then this happened on Thursday, and... And we think, well, maybe God's not real. Oh, no. Oh, no. We just have a wrong view of who he is and how he's working. We, in our minds, sometimes think, well, verse, when verse 11 comes, that means there is no verse 12. God's ways are not our ways. Yes, God gave Paul wonderful promises and comforting words, but he did not ever say anything about removing his problems or his pain. Sometimes when we go through those things, we think, well, what's wrong with me? The answer is nothing. What was wrong with Paul? Nothing. God was working. Where is God? Right where he said he would be. May I just say this this morning, Christian? God God never promised you and I that we would have no struggle. He promised that his strength would carry us through our struggle if we allow him to. Don't get him confused. Verse 11 gets us really excited, but one of the conclusions from this story is sometimes you wake up the next morning not with less problems but with new ones. That doesn't mean God's power is any, that I preached about last week is any less. That doesn't mean his presence is any less real. That, and understand those things. We get it confused. We think that his presence in our lives is supposed to make sure that we have no tribulations. But what did Jesus say? He said, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. American Christianity and the prosperity gospel often speaks into this lie in our minds. 
It tells us the closer we get to God, the less problems or pain we'll have. That's not always the case. You see, the Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Those that are living for God walk through valleys, and those that aren't living for God walk through valleys. The difference is who we walk through the valleys with. When we understand those things, that life has seasons of bounty and seasons of struggle, we're much better equipped to walk through the difficult seasons in faith and hope rather than despair. Even Paul got this a little confused sometimes, and God had to teach him. Do you remember what he said in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12? He said, he was telling his testimony, he said, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, because of all that God was doing in my life, I could get lifted up in a little bit of pride. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Sound like fun? Yes or no, church? Yes or no? No. Some people, uh, some people believe that that was a vision problem. Paul had an eye condition that he struggled with, some physical infirmities, some physical maladies. Others believe that was proof that Paul was married. I'm not sure which one of those is true, but just kidding, just kidding. But uh, somebody woke up. And, uh, but a thorn in the flesh, he said, notice pain. I'm serving you, God. I'm doing a great work for you. And pain comes into my life. Pain that I didn't ask for. Pain that I wouldn't want. Pain that I don't think is good. How do I know Paul didn't think it was good? Because what does it say? Given me a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord. How many times, church? How many times? Three times. You know what that tells me? Paul felt like my life would be better if I didn't have this pain. My service to God could be better if I didn't have this problem. God, would you take it away? And I don't believe there's anything wrong with asking that. God, would you take it away? If I had a thorn in the flesh, I would probably ask God to heal it, to take it away. That would be my first desire. God, would you take it away? I, it doesn't tell us how, how long that request was. I don't know if that was in the same day. I, I happen to think it was probably over the course of time, maybe weeks or even months, where Paul had this thing, and he came before God and said, God, would you please take it away, and then walked away. And I don't know for sure, but I do know that Paul over and over and over again, three different times, said, God, I don't want this. And what did God say, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. He didn't say anything about removing the pain. He didn't say anything about removing the problem. He said, I'll be there with you through that. My grace is enough. And we need to remind ourselves that his presence and his promises don't always guarantee that we will be without pain and problems. Which leads me to our next conclusion from the story. Conclusion number two, with Christ, trials don't weaken us, they strengthen us. With Christ, trials don't weaken us, they strengthen us. I don't know about you. I view struggles almost always as negative. Almost always I view struggles as things I want to get out of my life. My life would be better I would be more productive I would, if I didn't have this burden, if I didn't have this problem, if I didn't have this issue, if I didn't have whatever it might be. We view trials as things that hold us back, but with Christ, they're actually things that can propel us forward in his service. How do I know that? The end of the verse we just read about Paul asking for God to get rid of it three times. Uh, the, the end of that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12, what does it say? He said, my grace is sufficient for thee. Here's what, what God, God told Paul. For my strength is made perfect in what church? Weakness. 
my strength is made perfect in weakness. With Christ, my trials, my weakness makes me stronger. That doesn't make sense. Then what does Paul say? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take, this seems really sadistic. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. This is not the same Paul as two verses before. Paul is telling you, God taught me something. I wanted to get rid of it. I didn't want it in my life. I saw it as a bad thing. God said it's a good thing. So now, because God has taught me that and God has shown me that, so now I get excited when I have trials because with God's help, it makes me a better Christian. It draws me closer to him. It makes me stronger. And when he decides that I, I'm going to be in need and, and, and I'm going to have a struggle and I'm going to be in persecution and people are going to turn against me, Paul says, I, I don't know how he does this other than the power of God, most gladly, therefore I will glory, I will take pleasure in those things. Why? Paul had learned throughout his life, Paul had learned that with Christ, trials don't weaken us, they strengthen us. Is that Job that said that? Was it Job? When I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold, more valuable, more pure, of better use, in human wisdom, we almost always view problems and pain, oppose, opponents and opposition as negative, as counterproductive to God's plan, as detours along our journey rather than a profitable part of God's preparation and plan for our journey. God was not hurting Paul here, church. He was preparing him. In fact, a couple of years after this struggle right here, Paul will write from prison these words to the church at Philippi, but I would, you should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather to, unto the furtherance of the gospel, Philippians 1, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren waxing bold, uh, brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What did Paul say in Philippians 1? A couple years after this, I want you to understand my negatives, God has turned into positives. People are more bold to preach Jesus because of the, the hardship Paul, God has let me go through. The, the, the furtherance, the gospel has gone further. What is Paul saying? Here's what he's saying. My pain was productive. My problems were profitable. My troubles were part of God's plan to further the gospel. What an exciting conclusion. God, you can use my pain my struggle, my weakness to do things I never could have done without it. God, you can do those things. It's ultimately this season you may be walking in or that one day we will walk through. This season isn't for your hurt. It's ultimately for your good and God's glory if you walk through it in faith, resting in him even when you don't understand. Conclusion number three, God's math makes less sense to us than abstract algebra. When I was in Bible college, I tried to take a few extra credits each semester. I was ready to get out. I wanted to be done with college and be done as quickly as possible. So while a regular course load was 14 or 15 or 16 credits a semester, 
I would often sign up for an extra two or three credit class. I would go for 18 or 19, maybe one, one or two semesters, even 20. Really try to kill myself with that and maybe take an extra class over a winter break or a, or a summer term and try to get some extra. And I was coming near the end where I met with my academic advisor and it looked like I was going to be able to complete my course of study a semester early. I was going to be able to be done in three and a half years, finish in December, get married in February, enter the ministry in, in March, and uh, that was my goal. The only problem, in fact, toward that end, I had taken a couple of classes. Most of my classes, you have courses of study you have to take, and then they give you a few electives. You can pick a couple of classes that really you're interested in, but don't have anything to do with what your, your actual field of study is. You can take this elective or that elective, or it might have a little bit to do with it, but not, you know, not, not my pastoral major, whatever it was. So one time I had gone, and the only class available was Introduction to Stringed Instruments. That they would let me take as an elective. I have never played the violin. I don't know anything about music theory. I don't, I don't have a cello in my garage. I had no interest in stringed instruments, but I took the class because I thought, how hard can it be? And, uh, and I need those two credits or one credit or whatever it was. It was, a, it was, a, it was a, not, it didn't meet as much. It was a smaller class. And so I, I took that. So one time I took introduction to stringed instruments just because I wanted to get some. And so Nishida who played, if you need any tips, I can see you after church, but um, <laughs> I wanted to get, get ahead there, and, and uh, I got close. I think it might have been my last semester, and I was going to be two or three credits short, and what, what they were offering is what I needed, and I still had an elective that I could choose, and I met with the academic advisor, and we looked, and the only class that they said I could take that would count toward it was abstract algebra. I'd never heard of abstract algebra. I'd heard of algebra, pre-algebra, algebra one, algebra two, and anybody in here ever take abstract algebra course anywhere? A few of you, okay. I'm sorry, my condolences, but um, I thought, hey, I passed Algebra 1 in, in high school. I passed Algebra 2 in high school. How hard can abstract algebra be? Little did I know, abstract algebra is not a math class. It's a foreign language class. You are learning a completely different system of, I don't even remember, it's, I've tried to forget all of it, but you're learning rules and terms and formulas. If you think algebra is confusing, abstract algebra is like it's way more confusing uncle. It's, uh, it makes no sense to the normal human being. Go Google it this afternoon and see for yourself. Google an abstract algebra. I did it this week just to go back and see it. Syllabus and see for yourself for a course study. I have no idea who came up with it or why. In fact, one day in the middle of the semester, my brain was hurting if and only if and all of these, these rules and these terms. And, and, and I, I literally, I wasn't trying to be a, a smart aleck. I literally raised my hand and I asked, I said to my teacher, I said, can you come up with one scenario in my future adult life where I will use anything I'm learning in this class ever again? I'm not going to go teach abstract algebra. That's the only way I could see you might use that is if you're trying to inflict that punishment on someone else. I'm not going to do that. And I was, I was being sincere. Like, honestly, I'm working, I'm studying, I'm, my brain hurts. What does this mean? Is there anywhere? And he gave me some, some, some stuff about it's helping you with thought processes and ways to critically think. And that sounds like something an abstract algebra teacher would say because he can't tell you any way you'll actually use it. And and I, and, I, and, I, and I was learning that it, it made no sense. I'm happy to report that with much tribulation, I did pass the class with an A, uh, a grade that I'm probably most proud of. Thank you. That was 25 years ago, but thank you for still caring. And uh, um, probably the grade I'm most proud of in all of my college studies. Abstract algebra makes no sense to my mind. 
I, I couldn't do any of it today if you brought it before me. But in this passage, God's math makes even less sense. Let me explain. In verse 13, we start with one prisoner plus 40 plus armed assassins. I don't know about you, but one guy in chains against 40 plus people with weapons, those aren't good odds. That's, that you're not going to see, you're not going to add those, put that equation together and come out with one guy escapes. That's not what you're going to come up with in that equation. In verses 14 and 15, it goes from one prisoner versus 40 killers to one prisoner versus 40 killers and 71 religious and political powerful leaders, those that had the power to put someone to death. One versus 111, not really a good math equation for victory. In verse 16, it turns into one prisoner and one nameless nephew, a, little, a young man, and God turns one prisoner and one nameless nephew into a well-trained, well-equipped army of 470 soldiers. That math doesn't make any sense in my mind. I would never look at a prisoner and his nephew and think, you know the end of this story, what it's going to look like? 70 horses, 200 spearmen, 200 soldiers, a couple centurions, Paul on his own steed riding triumphantly out of town. I think that's how this is going to turn out. That math makes no sense to me. Wasn't a fair fight, but only in God's math can one plus one equal 470. That doesn't even work in algebra. And I want to remind you that in this story, God used a nameless nephew to overthrow powerful politicians and armed assassins. Only our God can do those kinds of things, church. Only our God can take a shepherd boy with a homemade slingshot and give him victory over a well-armored giant of a military champion. Only our God can take five loaves and two fishes and turn it into food for 10,000 plus people. His math is amazing, but it doesn't always make sense. He can take 300 soldiers led by a timid, fearful military leader and lead them to defeat and kill an army of 120,000. How does that work? Well, the prophet Isaiah recorded it this way. He said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts your thoughts. We want to figure these things out for God. God, how are you going to take this brokenness and turn it into to wholeness? How are you going to take this hurt and turn it into joy? How are you going to take this pain and turn it into the gospel being preached? We can't figure those equations out, but in this chapter, we see that God can figure every one of those equations out. It doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? It's like algebra for some of us. It doesn't compute, but God's math doesn't follow the rules of our math. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher. Jesus said it this way in Matthew. Everybody, even today, human condition, what do we worry about? We worry about our stuff. How much money am I going to make? What's my job going to look like? How am I going to pay the bills? How's this going to work out? How are my kids going to go to college? How am I going to retire? We're worried about all that stuff. You know what God says? Jesus, Jesus said in Matthew chapter number six, but seek ye first, put the, in the integer, put the, in the equation, put Jesus, the kingdom of God first, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't worry about any of that stuff. Take no thought what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on. The sparrows, they don't take any thought, he said. The flowers of the field, they don't take any thought. And yet I say unto you that not one of them is arrayed, uh, Solomon in all his glory wasn't arrayed as beautifully as one of them. 
them. Take no thought. The sparrow doesn't worry about those things. He doesn't worry about that, but I take care of him. I make sure that he's fed every day. What did he say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, the stuff you're worried about, shall be added unto you. What's his math say? He says, don't worry about that stuff first. Worry about your Savior first. We focus on things. God says, focus on me and I'll take care of the things. Proverbs 3, Solomon himself said, honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. What does he say? Take what I've given you and use it to honor me and I'll bless it. We, what we want to do is say, God, I've only got a little. I've got to make it into a lot and then I'll try to give you some leftovers. God says, give me your first and your best. Give me the first day of your week. Give me some of the first moments of your day. Give me the first dollar that you earn. Uh, give, give me the first and the best. Give me, the, your, don't wait until you're 60 or 70 or 80. Say, I'll get, I'll get serious about God. Oh no, get, seek him early, the Bible says. As a young person, give me your first and your best and watch what I can do with you and for you. For decades, I've sought to give the Lord some of the first moments of my day. The first day of my week has been set aside for more than three decades to worship him. I'll look forward to coming back to church again tonight. A minimum of the first $100 of every thousand that my wife and I have earned in our marriage uh, with more on, on top of that in weekly offerings for missions and missions work and, 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 and other church projects. And I can't explain it. God's math doesn't always make sense, but in God's economy, God can make six days more profitable and productive than seven when I give him. And we should give him every day. I understand that. But when we say, God, I'm setting aside this time for you. I can't explain it, but, but, but he allows us to ride for our family in greater ways with 90 or 80% of our income or 75%, whatever it might be, when we give back to him and others than many people are able to do with 100% of their income. Solomon said it this way in Proverbs 11, there is that scattereth and yet increaseth. That math doesn't make sense. You don't give stuff away and, and end up with more. That's not how it works. There is that scattereth and yet increaseth, and there is that withholdeth more than is meat, but it tendeth to poverty. What is God saying? Would you trust me? I gave it all to you. I can give you what you need. Would you trust me with your life? Young person, would you trust me with your life? You don't have to seek your own path and your own career. Seek me. Seek first the kingdom. Well, I need to make more money. I grew up poor. I've got to get this. I've got... If God wants you to make money, go make money and use it for his glory. You don't have to worry about that. No, God, what would you have me to do? How do you want me to live my life? How do you want me to lead my family? How do you want me to spend my day? God, you have priority in my budget. You have priority in my schedule. You have priority in my life plans. I can't explain his math, church, but I can tell you I've experienced the blessings of his math. Give God your first hours, the first day of your week, the first dollars of your paycheck, not your leftovers. Give him your first and your best and really give him everything and, and watch his crazy, awesome, miraculous math come through when it makes no sense to anyone watching. And then conclusion number four, God is always in control. I know it sounds cliche, but all odds are stacked against Paul here. Culture's against him. Government's against him. Religion is against him. Circumstances are against him. But God uses a godless government to accomplish his plans for Paul to take the gospel to Rome. God uses unlikely people and unlikely methods to produce unlikely results. What did Paul say in another one of his writings? With God, nothing shall be impossible. I understand that we are living in difficult days, aren't we? 
The flow of information where we can hear of current events from around the world within seconds of them happening, it's exacerbated that feeling that we're just one bad news story after another. We hear about every bad, and, and by the way, that's what gets clicks. That's what sells. That's what pays advertising dollars. Wholesome stories don't generate a lot of viewership. Scandals do. And so we're, we're bombarded with that stuff. And, and, and if we're not careful as Christians, we can start feeling like it's hopeless. I don't want to say it out loud, but I, I think maybe God's lost control. I would never say that, but my behavior, my words, my attitude, my fear tells a different story. The nightly news and social media and COVID and the economy and housing prices and the government and wars in other countries and, and, and shootings and human trafficking and godless leaders and scandals with pastors and scandals with government and, and, and financial crises and division amongst Christians and online debates and vaccines. And we start to believe that all hope is gone. God has lost control. And may I just say, if you struggle in despairing over everything you see around you, may I suggest that that you watch a little less Fox News and read a little more good news. As one pastor said, as one pastor said, all of us would probably do well to get, a, a, get off of Facebook and get our face in the book. And I know that's cliche and that's clever and that's trite, but here's the reality, church. Paul was in a spot where it seemed like God was out of control, but God had never lost control. Maybe a little less, and I listened to a podcast yesterday, but maybe a few less podcasts and a little more prayer. Be careful what we're allowing to dominate our thoughts. Less time meditating on what man is saying and more time meditating on what God has said and who he is. We say we believe he's in control, but sometimes our words, our conversations, our social media posts, and even preachers, our preaching tells a different story. I like what A.W. Tozer said, while it looks like things are out of control, behind the scenes there is a God who has not surrendered his authority. Hey, Paul, how do things look for you? You know, if you ask me when I read that up to verse number 10, hey, Paul, how do, hey, Ryan, how do things look for Paul? Things look really bleak. I, I see no way he gets out of this one. I, I don't think there's any, he's got the Jews against him. He's got the Romans against him. He's in, in prison. We don't see anywhere that the church is praying for him. There's nothing recorded that he has any support whatsoever in this passage from the church, from fellow believers. It doesn't look good. I think this is the end. But I think after verse 11, if you ask Paul, hey, Paul, how do things look for you while you're in, in that prison there, in those chains? I think Paul might have said something similar to the famous quote from William Carey, the man often referred to as the father of modern mission. I think he might have said something like, the future is as bright as the promises of God. Oh, my circumstances aren't real bright, but I got a promise last night that God's not done with me. The future, Paul might say, is as bright as the promises of God. Believer, conclusion number four, God is still in control. His arm is not shortened. His strength is not weakened. He has not lost one ounce of his power. Man's wickedness and man's ways and your faults and your failures do not lessen God's ability to work in and through us. What was God's promise? I'm sending you to Rome, Paul. God was not done, even when it seemed hopeless. His plan will prevail. His word is true. His work will not be thwarted. Christian, trust his word. Obey his word. Follow his plan. Stay faithful. And as Paul writes to the Romans, if God be for us, who can be against us? Well, Pastor Ryan, haven't you heard? 
county, the county board of supervisors is against us, and Governor Newsom's against us, and President Biden's against us, and the Congress is against us, and, and having it heard, and, and, and the financial markets are against us, and the housing market's against us. If God be for us, who can be against us? Get back to the right priority. I'm not saying those problems don't matter. I'm not saying we ought not pray about them. I'm not saying we ought not be informed about them. What I am saying is we ought not be controlled by them. Get back to remembering who's really in control. And let his word speak to you. And let it minister to you. So I don't know. I hope something helped you. Which one of those four was for you? What an exciting conclusion to Acts 23. What exciting transformational conclusions from this story was for you? Was it the reminder that God's presence and his promises don't eliminate problems or pain? You started to grow disillusioned because you forgot that truth. Pain is not always an indicator that you're doing something wrong. Is it the conclusion that with Christ, trials don't weaken us, they strengthen us? Is it the conclusion that God's math makes less sense to us than abstract algebra and it's a lot more amazing? Or is it the final conclusion that God is always in control? We'll put those four conclusions on the screen there. and You give that some thought. Which one do you need to carry with you this week? God came through in amazing ways, and Paul couldn't have foreseen any of it. Which one of those is for you this week? Let's trust him. Let's rest in him. Let's live Thank for you him. for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.